Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is May 18th, and my guest is Peter Leeson, BB&T Professor for the Study of Capitalism here at the Department of Economics at George Mason University and the author of The Invisible Hook. Pete, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you very much for having me. Our topic for today is the economics of pirate life, the subject of your recent book, The Invisible Hook. You argue that pirate life was pretty orderly. It's not really what we think of when we think of pirates. We sort of think – I think of a bunch of guys running up the rigging and they've got knives and cutlasses or whatever else they've got in their teeth and it's kind of like a big boil of fighting and scrummaging, scrumming and chaos. But that's not the case. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because I think – Part, you know, that's certainly part of our popular image of pirates is that they're these, you know, rogues, which they were. They were criminals, uh, and they were highly dis- disorderly criminals, and that's the way that they've been depicted in pop culture, you know, time and again. And in fact, I think that's partly what makes them so fascinating and lovable to us. But at the same time, our views of pirates are, is, are somewhat schizophrenic because while we have this notion of disorderly pirate communities, we also in pop culture have this idea of a pirate's code, for example. And one of the things you know that the book tries to do is actually to, to reconcile these disparate ideas that exist in our minds. And uh, it turns out that the idea of pirates as being disorderly, as, as you referred to, is in fact completely wrong. Pirate ships, it seems, were incredibly cooperative and orderly. They weren't perfectly so, um, but they were but they were significantly more more orderly and cooperative than they are typically depicted. And this, in fact, has its foundations, at least in large part, in this idea of a pirate's code. You know. Part of the the thing that was critical for pirates, for their criminal enterprise to be successful, was to somehow be able to stay together. You needed to create some kind of honor among thieves in order for the criminal enterprise to function, to pursue piratical profit. And so a sort of system of what I describe in the book as a system of of early constitutional democracy in many ways uh, was the pirates' preferred method of doing so. And the basics of that system are quite straightforward. You have a couple of main pirate officers, the captain being the, the one that we typically think about as the most important, but in fact an even, an even more important officer was this fellow named the quartermaster. Uh, and both of these guys were popularly elected by the crew. And just as importantly, if they went outside their bounds, which I'll discuss in a moment, if they overstepped their narrowly circumscribed authority granted to them by their fellow crew members, they could be popularly deposed and were readily deposed as well. So you've got a system of democracy to elect the pirate leadership, and alongside that you have a, a uh, an actual written constitutional system that both establishes democracy as the sort of form of the selection of leadership and also the form for the selection of some pirate rules, uh, along with other parts of a sort of pirate code, a genuine pirate code, that was different from ship to ship but had a lot of similarities. And the basics of that code are sort of what you would think a, a group of outlaws would in fact need in order to, to remain together and to cooperate. Uh, and that consisted of rules that regulated theft and violence. It uh, consisted of rules that actually also regulated things strangely like drinking and smoking and gambling. Um, and and why, did, why did it do that? 
why the rules on, on, on drinking and smoking and gambling? I think in large part, be, what, what I argue in the book is because those sorts of behaviors were liable to generate significant negative externalities on pirate ships. Uh, you know, normally if you think about a, a sort of landed community, smoking may generate some negative externalities. People might not like the smell of the smoke. There may be negative health effects, as we're often told today. <laughs> Uh, but on a pirate ship, the, the negative externality of smoking was considerably greater than that. You were liable to, to blow the ship to, and the crew to smithereens. You know, an early 18th century pirate ship was built of wood and cloth. And so uh, it was highly flammable, and there was a lot of gunpowder on board. And so it was important for pirates not, it turns out, to prohibit smoking in general, but to prohibit areas of smoking. So you weren't supposed to smoke your pipe or dump it, for example, in the hold, which is where the gunpowder would be. Similarly, the other kinds of rules, the other kinds of negative externalities that, that existed on pirate ships were, again, a function of the fact that an early 18th century vessel has a lot of guys, especially in the pirate's case, because they had large crews, a lot of guys crammed together in a very small space for a really long period of time. And so a lot of things that wouldn't typically generate conflict between people on a pirate ship would. Uh, drunkenness, gambling, which could lead to fights, for example, gambling for money. Uh, those were the sorts of activities that were that were very likely to generate conflict among pirates. So, seeking to prevent those sorts of behaviors from undermining their criminal cooperation, uh, pirates regulated them. Now, our image of, I think, of not just pirates but criminals in general is a lot of it comes from Hollywood. So, you know, I think about The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which is a movie about how uh, cooperation breaks down uh, – among thieves, and it's a common, it's a staple of Hollywood, right? That the thieves betray each other and take a bigger share of the loot than they were expecting or than they were uh, promised. How did the pirates uh, keep opportunism, either by the captain or by individual crew members or the quartermaster, from destroying uh, their whole enterprise, which would seem to be a major problem? Because I think in the minds of, of Hollywood, certainly, less in your mind to mine, but uh, I think in a lot of folks' minds, the way you keep people honest is through contracts and laws. And in the pirate case, they have no recourse to those, They and they've got a lot of guns and, 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 and swords. So why did it not break down into violence as often as it does, say, in the movies? The key thing for pirates, both with respect to their leadership and with respect to the agreements that they have not to defraud or, or uh, plunder their, their fellow crew members, is, the, is to make the contracts, which sometimes I'll talk about in a sec, were explicit, other times implicit, to make them self-enforcing. And the, the basic intuition behind this to sort of start to think about it is, if you were a pirate and you were caught, if the criminal uh, organization broke down, it wasn't simply that you couldn't pursue profit that way anymore, but you were liable to wind up at the hanging at the end of the hangman's noose. And so that was a very, very powerful motivator to help, in, to help uh, create cooperation between them. So there's two sorts of basic uh, contractual arrangements that we can think about. One more explicit, another, another more implicit between various members of the pirate crew. And probably the most important and the one which I give the most attention to in the book is the idea of, a, of an agreement between an ordinary pirate crew member and the pirate leadership. 
like any organization, pirates needed some leadership. They needed someone who could make decisions on behalf of the whole in certain cases. Even though pirates were democratic and they used democracy for many important decisions, it simply wasn't practical oftentimes to have the whole crew voting on, for example, whether or not they should fire, you know, cannon broadside, uh, you know, or cannon three, for example, at, one, at, sure. at a particular merchant ship that they were attacking. You needed snap decision making. Their leader was indispensable. And so the other thing, of course, that you need to have, have in a pirate ship that you're going to need leadership for is someone to actually, if you create rules, to enforce those rules. And that was a critical part of how they, made, of how they helped make the system self-enforcing. Uh, but again, the problem is, which I discuss in the book, is that leaders endowed with this kind of authority can also take advantage of the authority and use it for personal benefit uh, at, at the crew member's expense. And sadly, many pirates who had formerly sailed as le- in their legitimate lives as merchant sailors in the early 18th century came from merchant ships that had very autocratic governance arrangements. Uh, the captain had near dictatorial control, and he oftentimes, not always, and I think to a certain extent some of the abuses have been overplayed, but in many cases it seems that the captain on a merchant ship was able to take advantage of his power uh, at the crew member's expense. So these merchant sailors, in their part as pirates, were keenly interested in preventing such abuse from happening with their leadership. And that was their opportunity cost, right? So we could think of this enterprise having to compete with this legitimate enterprise in attracting sailors, which had a, a mixed – was a mixed bag, regular pay, the possibility of, of abuse or fraud on the part of the captain, uh, whereas your alternative was uh, a bigger – a lottery – of a much potential higher return in pay, but they wanted to make sure there wasn't this risk of abuse by this captain whose, whose incentives to abuse it would be in some sense much larger because the prizes were bigger, right? The, the prizes were bigger and unlike you know at least a merchant captain, in principle the law restrained his ability to take advantage of his sailors, and sailors had recourse in courts if in fact he was abusive. A pirate captain, of course, there was nothing you could do there. That was an, you know, that was an illegal behavior. It's kind of like having if your crack dealer defrauds you, where do you go? Right. Um, and so it was, it was a much more difficult problem for pirates to overcome, which I think is partly responsible for the reason that their solution was so much more effective. And that was, on the one hand, the system of democracy, uh, wh- where the crew members were an ultimate check on the ability of the leaders through their ability to select and depose them. But also this this idea of the Constitution again, and this is the explicit part of the contract. Each member of a pirate crew before an expedition signed off on the set of rules that they sort of collectively created before uh, going on the account, as they called it. And what that did was exist as a written contract between the captain the quartermaster, and all the various crew members. And the, the, one of the really important functions it played in allowing that contract to be self-enforcing was making the terms explicit. So obviously one of the possible sources of, of predation is the captain taking a larger share than he's supposed to. But if we write down in the contract exactly here's how many shares the captain is supposed to have, and here's what we do, for example, uh, in the event in which the booty involved that we take is, is unclear, is, its value is unclear, how to distribute it and so forth. By making those things explicit, we create common knowledge among the crew members that we can actually all observe and agree upon when, in fact, the captain is overstepping his bounds. And there's really nothing the captain can say for his part uh, as a way of trying to defend against that. And so this helps to coordinate the crew member's ability to enforce the terms of the agreement against the, uh, against the pirate captain. And that raises two questions. The first is usually in illegal enterprises, written documents are frowned on. They can be used in court as evidence of, 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 of illegality. 
And it's a strange thing to think about early 18th century uh, pirates, maybe with wooden legs and eye patches, uh, with this sort of uh, Madisonian, uh, pre-Madison, Madisonian framework. So I'm curious about two things. One, how did that start? Do we know anything about how that evolved and became this sort of standard experience of a written document? And two, how did they avoid this legal complication of having a proof that they were pirates? Yeah, both both excellent questions. So we, we know a little bit about the evolution of the pirates' uh, system of constitutions, and it seems to derive most directly from pure pirate predecessors, which are actually the buccaneers. The buccaneers operated from about 1630 uh, until about 1690, and buccaneers were kind of something in between pure pirates, the Blackbeard and Calico Jack Rackham type that I primarily discuss in the book, early 18th century pirates. Uh, they were something in between them and privateers. And privateers, of course, were state-commissioned and sanctioned uh, sea robbers. During war times, various European governments, as a, as a low-cost way to augment their navy, would basically hire or commission private vessels to go about and, and seize enemy nations' merchant shipping. So the buccaneers did some of that stuff during periods of war in the, late, in the mid to late 17th century. Uh, but they also, when those wars ended, turned to outright piracy, which is why they're kind of in between. And what they had was what they called a chase party. These were primarily French, although there were later Dutch and English uh, buccaneers involved as well. They were a kind of multinational uh, sea-roving uh, sea uh, outlaws. They, this chase party was their kind of constitutional system, and it set up. And they were not they were not nearly as as detailed, nor were they as thoroughgoingly democratic as the their their uh, pure pirate predecessors in the early eighteenth uh, early eighteenth century would have would would create when it came to their constitutions. But they had some similar features. They had a system of workmen's compensation, for example, which I discuss in the book. They dis they established how pay would be allotted. Uh, they pointed to democracy as the method by which they would make important decisions and so forth. So the buccaneers seem to provide the kind of basis for the later pirate, later 18th century pirates' constitution, but maybe we can even trace the buccaneers' system back a little bit further. Privateering is extremely old, and in a way, as I noted, the buccaneers were in part privateers, and privateers also had uh, ships' articles, which is actually, incidentally, what the pirates also called their constitutions, ships' articles. And these articles also establish certain rules aboard the ship. So there is some carryover from legitimate society, I think, to a certain extent. Uh, but the articles obviously are performing a different function. You're not going to need the same kinds of rules, nor the rules no going, need to be going to be as elaborate or detailed when you're talking about rules to regulate the floating society of legitimate privateersmen as opposed to the illegitimate floating society of outlaw pirates. Um, so this idea of, of having kind of seaborne rules of order is, is a very old one indeed, and it certainly goes back, I'd say, even before the 16th century. I have a follow-up question, but do you want to talk about the issue of the leak, of having a paper record of your... Yeah, I, I did. I, I mean, the, the additional cost of writing your rules down, uh, conditional on being captured uh, and suspected as a pirate, is very, very small. The reason being that, and this is, I kind of go into some of the legal regime related to piracy in the book, but by the time in the 1720s when you really have a very high probability of being captured as a pirate, 
you're pretty much going to be hanged no matter what. It doesn't matter whether the, whether the rules are written down. Um, and we have a few yeah. cases, you know, mm. Bart Roberts' crew allegedly pitched their articles overboard so that the authorities wouldn't be able to see them. Uh, although this is, this is later recounted by, by a uh, Bart Roberts contemporary, so they were certainly aware of the articles. And some early 18th century newspapers actually apparently got a hold of some and, and reprinted them. So what was the... What was the timing of all this? You know, in my mind, which is clearly wrong, you know, the pirate, the captain's on the dock, looking at some able-bodied fellow, saying, "Hey, come on, you know, a little, little baby, uh, a booth." And the guy said, "Well, I'm going to see the articles." Okay, well, here they are. Oh, that seems fair. I'm in. And well, then they, well, then once everybody's in, we say, "Well, let's vote on the captain." But that isn't obviously what was the how it worked. What was the sequence by which a uh, how a crew got together, accepted those articles, and voted. What was? Give me a, a scenario that might describe how that worked. Well, this is a bit speculation. We don't know exactly, but but uh, here's what I would. Here's the description. I that forgot. I, would. I forgot. It's not really on the booth on the dock. It's in the it's in the tavern when the guy sees a guy with a peg leg, a parrot on his shoulder, <laughs> and he leans over and says. You looking for you know workers? Yeah, you looking I, for sailors? I think that's actually probably in some ways fairly accurate. Many early 18th century pirates, in fact, the overwhelming majority of them, lived together at a land base, New Providence Island in the Bahamas, modern-day Nassau. And so what you'd have is this kind of, you know, these various rogues r- sitting around, and someone would decide, you know, let's draw, get, you know, get together a crew and go on the account. And it's unclear exactly whether it was in a tavern, although since pirates, we know, spent an inordinate <laughs> amount of time drinking. It was either a ta- tavern or a brothel. I don't think there was much else in commerce in those days. Very little else, right? <laughs> there weren't a lot of Best Buys, so, you know, that's where you'd go when you weren't sleeping. That's right, especially if you were a pirate. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so it's likely that that's roughly the way, the way that it went down. You have a bunch of guys who kind of talked about getting together a crew, and then they would pro- sit together. Uh, sit around together uh, and would sort of discuss what sorts of rules and regulations. Now, they didn't have to reinvent the wheel. Many of them had done this many times before. And even if they hadn't, they were certainly familiar with the uh, pirate codes used on other pirate ships, which surely some of the other guys who had sailed could offer up, you know, here are some provisions that were used in the past. They would kind of put this stuff together and typically they would, at that point, it seems, elect their elect their uh, their pirate captain. Now it may, in fact, be that the guy who kind of initiates the "let's go together," you know, get a crew together, could be is likely to be a leader and selected right. as a captain. The democracy piece becomes most important when you're actually when your crew is underway, and if your captain is somehow abusing the articles of agreement, you want to be able to get him out of command and you elect somebody else yeah. in his place. Could um, most of these folks read and write? Very good question. So most of them were partially, well, I shouldn't say most of them, a good percentage of them were semi-literate, not enough that they would have been able to chronicle their exploits, which is, in fact, as I talk about in the book a bit, responsible for why it is that there are very few uh, pirate left, in addition to the fact that they're outlaws again, pirate left sort of chronicles. A lot of memoirs. Yeah, I was a I was a Barbary pirate. Uh, it's, I think it's a movie, but <laughs> a good percentage of them though were capable of uh, at least signing their name. So they, that's what I mean. They had basic literacy, and even when they couldn't, they, as they say, made their mark, uh, which is where the the X marks the spot kind of idea comes from. But but if they couldn't read or write much, those articles probably weren't very. Um, uh, it's hard to argue. You'd think that they were very important. Well, I think 
this is, uh, again, partly probably one of the important functions of the, of the quartermaster, who some pirate contemporaries likened to, uh, you know, a sort of a Roman tribune whose, whose duty it was to act in the interest of the crew, to make the crew members aware. And we know that pirates viewed these, these articles as incredibly important, because when anybody wanted to enter their crew, and in fact, oddly enough, even when they conscripted certain members of their crew, they were religious about relaying the articles to the crew member and then actually having them sign off on it. Yeah, there must have been some kind of oral tradition about what was in them. And I think that, and I think, again, some of them certainly could at least basically read. Um, you know, the other thing that, that actually plays a role, or even if you can, is that pirates, as I referred to a little bit earlier, were a motley bunch. I mean, they were uh, came from all different nations, and so you're going to have different languages being, being the predominant uh, language. Uh, which is a problem, and the articles that we have access to were, were written in English. Um, a large percentage of early 18th century pirates were, in fact, English, so that makes sense. Did did there was there a clause that past returns were not a good indicator of future results to make sure people didn't get their hopes up too high about? You know? <laughs> there wasn't anything like that, but there was a clause that often said that asked the signing the the uh, signatory to promise to remain part of the crew until a certain sum had been made. Oh. Um, and they would, you know, they would tell you what that sum was. And that the idea was, you know, we don't want to kind of get everybody together and then two weeks into it you decide the pirating life is not for me, I'm out of here. Or um, you've made enough money. It's like the guy who quits the poker game at 9 o'clock when it's just getting going because he's won a few hands and everybody's furious because it ruins the... Um, let's turn to this question, which I, I thought was very uh, extremely interesting in the book about how the pirates were able to enforce effort because one of the challenges on a, on a pirate boat, uh, pirate ship, is first of all, the tasks are, not, are a little more open-ended. Uh, basically, you're in a, a war situation, and in war situations, usually you enforce effort through, again, legal threats, court-martial uh, on the negative side. That's the, the stick uh, or, or a death. Um, and then... On the carrot side, medals and honors and, and things like that. The pirates didn't have that legal institution. What did they do to ensure that people uh, gave full effort and didn't shirk? They primarily incentivized crew members to kind of give their full effort by giving them bonuses. Um, especially if you were the first to spot a potential prize, if you someone observed you, even though it was difficult to observe, but if you were seen to have, have displayed exceptional valor during battle, um, and so on, they would give you an extra share of booty, which was laid out in the, in the Constitution, or they had agreed to ahead of time, uh, or you would get, uh, you know, some the best pair of pistols aboard the ship. Who would make those decisions? The quarter ma- who would make the decision about, about whether a bonus was to be was to be made was to be given. Whether someone had to had to make the ultimate decision, and that, again, in the movie, you all sit around and we, right? So, to me, it's a little bit like after the. A modern uh, soccer game, uh, or basically, now who played really well? Who could say find something nice to say about you know about Johnny? Uh, so I, whatever mechanism they use, still someone had to decide extra share or no extra share. It's a yeah. big deal. It's not just like you know nice round of applause. It's a big deal, right? So somebody had to make that call. Who who was that? It seems that it was again. We don't know for certain, but it seems that it was very likely to be the quartermaster 
probably what most likely happened is that you have a member of the crew who suggests, you know, Johnny was a, did, did an extremely good job, and then the, the other crew members are sort of a here, here, or a yeah. no, he didn't. The quartermaster, <laughs> however, is the guy who ultimately was charged with enforcing those kinds of provisions in the Constitution. So ultimately it would have been up to his, his discretion. But as with many piratical decisions, even where he exercised that decision, uh, that kind of discretion, in a fundamental sense, it was shaped by popular will on the ship. Yeah, I just uh, could imagine some rent seeking there. People trying to get in the good graces of the quartermaster. Oh, certainly. Um, no problem. I'm, you know, pirates. It, it, even their system of of democracy had had for sure, in many ways, the same kind of flaws that a traditional system of democracy uh, would have. In fact, so it's not just there. I don't want to argue, and I don't argue in the book that that these the pirate system of governance was perfect. It certainly wasn't. Uh, and there was ample scope, as there is in pretty much any kind of arrangement, for um, some kind of underhanded dealing. But pirates, compared to their legitimate contemporaries, seem to have been uh, better at, at sign of, uh, sort of preventing some of those situations from occurring. And there was a workers' comp system. Describe the that. The workers' comp system was also important as, as a way to incentivize pirates. Uh, the idea being that, obviously, if, if during battle... You were very likely to get injured, and so you want to make sure, you know, the, the whole pirate crew will kind of break down if everybody ends up wimping out and free riding, so they're unwilling to give it their all. And so one way that pirates seek to overcome this problem is to create this the system of workers' compensation. And uh, the system is very straightforward. If you have, you, you know, your left leg lopped off or blown off by a cannonball, uh, you get a certain number of pieces of eight. If it's your right leg, it's, you know, a higher or lesser amount. It could be your eye, your arm, various appendages and body parts, uh, and so forth. And the different values that were attached to these body parts presumably reflected the different value that pirates placed on them in the act of pirating. Uh, again, there's going to be some discretion, incidentally, in this case as well, in sort of determining things. Right. Ha- is it half a leg? You know, <laughs> uh, they were very detailed in the way they did it, but that you're right, that couldn't prevent them, couldn't prevent situations from emerging in which there still had to be some judgment call. Again, the quartermaster's purview. And you describe the quartermaster as a separation of powers equivalent to uh, be a if I may use a nautical term, a ballast against the power of the captain. Um, describe how that would work and, and why you think it was so effective. I, the way that it worked was, was uh, very simple. The captain wielded unquestioned authority during times of battle when autocratic decision-making was critically important. Basically, at all other times, the quartermaster wielded the lion's share of the power on the ship. Now, again... And this is, I think, partly the reason that it was so effective, is that the the quartermaster was democratically elected like the captain, but also, while in certain especially uh, smaller decisions, sort of day-to-day decisions, doling out a basic punishment for a simple infraction of one of the pirate's rules, that fell completely under the quartermaster's discretion. No one could really question him in that. But if there was a bigger issue that arose... Um, or if there was likely to be disagreement, a large percentage of, of the crew, you know, had a different sentiment. Um, or if, in fact, the pirate articles were unclear in a particular case, or they didn't talk about whether or not the, the behavior in question constituted a rule violation or not, it was likely that the, pi- the pirates would get together and kind of form a, a, a kind of quasi-judiciary, uh, but which acted in a democratic fashion to kind of try and resolve the thing, and then ultimately the enforcement would be carried out by the quartermaster. So even there, the quartermaster's power had that kind of crew check against it. 
part of the, I think that helped make it very effective. And the other thing that made it very effective was the simple fact that the captain and quartermaster uh, indirectly competed. They competed for the highest office. When an unpopular or incompetent captain uh, was deposed by the crew, it was often the quartermaster who was elected by the crew in his place. It didn't have to be that way, right? but it was commonly that, that be, way. Yeah. So they both were kind of interested in playing to the interests of the ordinary crew member, which, of course, is exactly what the ordinary crew member wanted. Yeah. Well, let's talk about tyranny. Uh, you know, one of the themes of the book, which is very interesting and I, I like a lot, is this um, – these parallels between uh, democratic constitutional government in our lives and democratic constitutional government in these in these pirate situations. Um, in you point out that the guard against tyranny was deposing uh, the captain, and you describe examples where they would uh, maroon him or, or crew members who misbehaved. Uh, really, a horrific idea. <clears throat> um, Make you the governor of your own island. Yeah, congratulations. <laughs> of good news and bad news. <laughs> the governor of your own island, but it's not Hawaii. Um, but it, it raises the question of how that mechanism was enforced. And I may have missed this in the book, but my first thought is – and you contrast, by the way, this, this uh, uh, protection against tyranny with the tyranny of the merchant ship captain, the legal institution where – Although it wasn't – it may be exaggerated, there was definitely cases of abuse either because of sadism or pure opportunism on the part of a captain on a merchant ship who wanted uh, to keep a larger share of the food for himself or whatever the, the case might be. And in particular, you talk about uh, you know, real physical abuse, the cat of nine tails, the – uh, and, and sometimes the death of crew members from uh, overly uh, disciplining captains on merchant ships. What protected the crew on uh, a ship besides the piece of paper? I have my own thoughts, kind of obvious thoughts, but I, I want to hear from you. I, I think it was it was the crew crew member sentiment. The captain was but one guy who had, unlike a merchant captain, had no formal backing. If you were on a merchant ship and you revolted against your captain, right? That was mutiny, and that was ultimately uh, a a a uh, crime that was punishable by death in certain cases. On a pirate ship, you know, there was no such thing. So, so the threat ultimately of a kind of a violent revolt, if need be, against a captain, I would say, at the end of the day, was probably a very important check. And you but have a number of 150 to 1 on a, on a pirate ship. Exactly. And his crew is – he does not have a set of officers other than the quartermaster, correct? There are sometimes smaller officers. Sometimes the guys like the cooper or the carpenter would be considered officers. But in general, it's the quartermaster. Because in the on the merchant ship, I have this image of he's got a little cadre exactly. of folks. But isn't that the important difference? Maybe I'm wrong. I, I would think that another important difference would be uh, weapons. Don't all the pirates on the crew have lots of weapons, and on the merchant ship they don't have any? Well, I think on a merchant ship they probably – and this I actually don't know as much about as I probably uh, could. But I think there was certainly access to weapons ultimately. Sometimes they were locked away. So what you'll see with some mutinies is actually – Yeah, to get into the weapons. That's get into always, the weapons, yeah, yeah. yeah. But on the pirate ship, are they locked away? No. They are They are certainly walking around with cutlass and pistol. Yeah, because that would seem to me – it just reminds me a little bit of, of – um, being in the Constitution of uh, Second Amendment, to me, the the non-monopoly on force, uh, the com- competitive role of force on the part of the people is an important check on the tyranny of the sovereign. 
Certainly. You know, you're absolutely right. I, th- I think that's very much true. Uh, and even, to, again, even to the extent that arms are more or less freely, a bit, freely available on, on the merchant ship, again, the simple legal difference means that effectively your gun is not a weapon, right? You can't really use it in the way as a threat uh, to remove someone who's abusing you from command. But it's just such an interesting example I can think of that the illegality of the pirates took away the opportunity to use the mutiny as a check on, on tyranny, right? On the merchant ship, even a whisper and whiff of, terror, of, of mutiny is, is a death sentence. It's not just, well, we tried to overthrow the captain and you know, it didn't work. <laughs> right. um, and, and if you did overthrow the captain, you, you had to go run away. Yep. You, you had a very unclear path of, of – uh, you had to try to make the case that the captain – if you came back to civilization, you had to try to make the case the captain deserved it. Right? I, there were some cases, I assume, where people avoided the death sentence of a mutiny because they could make the case the captain was a sadist or whatever. There but, were, but it was tough. And in general, a large – Well, the law, I assume, would, would be very eager to side with the, that's exactly, with the captain because exactly. otherwise you've got a real problem. And this is, in fact, why a, a decent-sized percentage of mutinies on merchant ships actually end up going pirate. That, that right. was, you know, in addition to recruiting through overtaking prizes, that was probably the second most important way that pirates recruited new, new sailors. But in the pirate society, the the threat, the captain says, "Hey, hey, this is mutiny." <laughs> He's got no leverage. It's just, uh, it's nice. It's an interesting uh, flip side to where the illegality leads to more order, in the sense that the it destroys the opportunism potential for the captain, at least to a large extent. Absolutely, and that's not the only case. You know, I try and argue in the book that's not the only case where the the very criminality of pirates is in fact responsible for a desirable, if we want to put it that way, part of their system. The whole system of uh, democratically elected and in fact constitutionally bound leadership on pirate. Uh, ships, I argue in the book, is again a function explicitly of the fact, particularly of the fact that uh, they're outlaws. Merchant ships can't go this route. There's a lot of people ask, well, if this system is so good so for pirates, yeah. why didn't we do it? Because what is efficient, what is economically, what is profitable, depends upon your economic circumstance. Uh, the, the the fact of the legality of Merchant ships meant, for example, you didn't have to, you weren't stealing the vessels that you were out there on. Instead, it was landed merchants who financed, who provided the capital for the ship. And, and I argue in the book that this created a, a principal agent problem. So you couldn't have a the you know the the ownership group, the landed merchants, saying, "Yeah, sure, crew members, when you get out there with our ship, which costs tons of money, <laughs> by the way, pick whomever you want, do what you need to do, it'll all be fine." They want to select you because because you'll want the trip to go well, and and which they do up to it. They don't want to they don't want to sink. They have right. some shared interests. Yes, but the, but the essence of a principal agent problem is that the interests of the principal are not always aligned with that of the agent, and right. therefore you've got. A governance problem, and here they diverge in important ways um, because you know sailors are paid on a wage basis, for example. So they're not legitimate sailors. Legitimate sailors, sailors, right? And so you know to guard against to, to protect their interests, they they basically create uh, you know this, these autocratic captains who are selected by them. Pirates, in contrast, because they're outlaws, don't have external financiers. So how do they get their ships? They steal them. Uh, and this is why, as, as one pirate historian puts it, and I think is, is a, a very accurate phrase, he likened a pirate crew to a seagoing stock company. Each yeah, it's a co-op. It's a co-op slash employee-owned. It's an employee-owned venture. Yeah. 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 Which, again, as, as I try to point out later on in the book, is also not evidence. In the same way that we shouldn't look at merchant ships and say, 
you know, shake our finger and say, oh, they should have had this democratic organization. Wouldn't have worked for them. Would have led to unprofitable merchant shipping. We also can't conclude from the success of, if we want to call it the workers' co-op model on a pirate ship, that therefore this is how modern legitimate businesses in general should be organized. There are costs and benefits to all sorts of different organizational structures. And given pirates' particular economic enterprise at the time and in the place they were operating, that was the most sensible. It wouldn't make sense to organize Walmart on that basis, as, as some people seem to want to do. Well, but they do – Walmart is organized partly on that basis in that um – like many successful businesses, they encourage an ownership in the, in the entire enterprise to, to reduce free riding. Absolutely. So, And this is one of the, the kind of lessons for modern firms that I point to in the book, right? We see firms engage in a whole bunch of different things, one of which is to give you, you know, stock options, give you part ownership as a way to try and resolve the principal agent problem. But the correct solution to the principal agent problem is going to differ in particulars instance by instance. So we can't, you know, the important takeaway is that understand there are principal agent problems. You can't perfectly overcome them in any case. Uh, but profit-oriented firms have strong interests in resolving these problems to to the efficient extent, if you will, um, to, to the point at which the, the marginal cost of doing so equals the marginal benefit. And the particular methods that they use to do that are, again, a function of their uh, particular cases. I want to... Before we leave this topic of free riding, I want to mention an example that Mike Munger gave in the podcast on the nature of the firm, which came to my mind when I was reading this section. Um, you talk about how you don't want an autocratic, tyrannical captain, so a guy who who acts that way is going to get deposed. He's not going to get elected in the first place, right? You don't want to you don't pick a sadist for your captain and, and give him give him any authority at all. Um, but Mike tells the story, which I think he got from a Stephen Chung article of people hauling a barge up the Yangtze and they pick a captain uh, who's really – who's kind of brutal because when you're hauling that barge, uh, you don't want any shirking. And so you might decide you're not going to shirk but you're worried about your neighbor shirking. So you're willing to tolerate a very aggressive – you're going to pick a very aggressive uh, disciplinarian for your captain the guy cracking the whip or you know beating the time on the rowing or whatever you want to call it to make sure that the whole enterprise finishes quickly and in that situation those people are not if i remember correctly they're not wage make people they're, they're people who are banded together to get this barge up the river mm-hmm. they're hauling it by hand you know over their shoulders and they really want to make sure that nobody shirks you seem to suggest in the in the book, that these captains were very um, the the word that comes to mind is enlightened, uh, or um, you know, touchy feely would be a little too strong, but it had a certain uh, uh, were nothing like the, the the captains we think of who were the the mutiny candidates, and yet the Chung story suggests that you know maybe every once in a while you'd you'd want one of those. What do, what do you think of that? Well, I you know if that's the impression that I give in the book, that then you know I I would like to. Uh, to, to say that it certainly is true that there was a certain a certain part of that. You know, there's a, a famous story about Blackbeard, who inviting one of his favorite crew members, you know, in, into uh, into a, a cabin, and I think they're playing a, a, a game, uh, or maybe just having a conversation. And underneath the table, Blackbeard discharges his pistol and shoots the guy in the kneecaps. And the the guy, you know, when he's kind of on the floor, is like, "What? Why the hell did you do this?" And Blackbeard is said to have commented uh, that he did this to just to remind everyone that kind of what he was capable of. So there are cases that you know <laughs> things that that happen like this. And and Blackbeard, of course, 
I'll presume that he was as the reason we know of him is that he was very successful. And obviously, if you're a great leader, you can extract some rents from your crew. Certainly. You know, Bill Belichick can get his his crew to work harder for him than than say another. Uh, captain could in, in football because they think there's a big return. So if you to be allied with the with the, a really great strategist you would be will you be willing to sacrifice some autonomy maybe or take a lower wage for a higher chance of absolutely of winning absolutely that that's I think that's exactly uh, exactly right. But at the same time, you know I don't think it's quite right to say that you that you're going to want to select a, a captain or a quartermaster for that matter. Who is kind of you know arbitrarily violent? I mean, psychotic or or, or, or <laughs> psychotic. You do incidentally want to select a captain who has a reputation to a certain extent, not for quite being psychotic, but as being perceived as uh, in some ways maniacal, which I discuss in the book. Um, but the key thing, you know, what you want is a quartermaster, for example, who's going to enforce the rules. You don't want want a quartermaster who's going to let you kind of slack off and do whatever. So your interest as a crew member is to not get a quartermaster that you know lets you sit on your laurels. It's one who will actually enforce the rules. Those rules were created, after all, by the pirates to maximize profit in the first place. Um, but part of the reason, and I suspect in the Chung case, uh, you know, part of the reason that this that this is sensible in this instance is again because the reason this crew members have this interest is because they are being implicitly their pay is a share. It's not a fixed thing. If your if your share if your wage is a fixed wage, so independent of how successful we are, yeah. I get paid the same. Then I don't have yeah, that interest different. anymore. But I'd also my my presumption, and tell me if I'm wrong. My presumption is that in the barge case, the task is straightforward. The goal is very clear. It's to get the barge up the river as quickly as possible. In the pirate case, unrelenting effort is not always the best policy. You need wise effort. You don't want everybody to go scrambling over the over the deck, you know, under the pir- under the lash of the captain, you want a captain who is thoughtful about. Let's say it differently. Shirking is a different order. Shirking in the barge case is pretending to pull when you're not pulling. Shirking in the pirate case might be, you know, ducking down rather than than going over the the edge or whatever we, we would do. But it would seem to me it'd be a subtler set of things. You wouldn't just want to be pushed forward constantly. Right. No, I, I think that's true. I mean. There is um, there's something that's a little bit more ironically delicate about the about yeah, the pirates. Test. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about the Jolly Roger, uh, the Skull and Crossbones. Uh, you uh, you talk about it as a uh, as a signaling device. So, what was its purpose? Well, the basic idea, you know, that I argue in the book is that the flag was was used as a way to communicate, if you were a pirate ship, that I am pirate and not another sort of belligerent who might be attacking you, who in fact is legitimate. Um, in the early 18th century, in addition to possibly being attacked by a pirate ship, you might also be attacked by a Spanish or French, but especially a Spanish, if you're a British ship anyway, a Coast Guard ship. And what these Coast Guards were, well, they were kind of like privateers. They were government commissioned vessels that were charged with protecting their country's uh, possessions in the Caribbean from interlopers, which were basically smugglers. And so, you know, they had commissions for this, but like privateers, they abused them in many cases. They kind of went around and they would just, you know, plunder people occasionally. And uh, the thing was, despite the fact that they operated in this kind of legal gray area, they weren't pirates. And what I argue in the book is that just like privateers, it seems that they were also restricted in how they could react to a merchant ship that resisted their advances. They weren't, uh, it seems to me, 
for example, allowed to wantonly brutalize crew members after the crew members had, you know, cried out for quarter, said basically, I surrender. This is different from a, if you're being attacked by a pirate ship. If you're a merchant ship being attacked by a pirate ship, and you resist the pirates' attack, the pirates are outlaws, they can do anything they want to you. And in fact, they did if you resisted them. As, as I discussed in the book, they did some very, uh, very brutal things. This is important for pirates because in order to cash in on the kind of greater scare factor of being a pirate then, uh, you need to somehow communicate that you're an outlaw and unconstrained as opposed to being a Coast Guard vessel. And if you're on the sea, you know, in the early 18th uh, century, the ships are looking pretty much the same. They are all, these are all merchant Pirate ships were just stolen merchant ships. Coast Guard vessels were basically also just like merchant vessels. Um, so you can't kind of, you know, with, with your eye, see what's going on differently. And all these different ships, they weren't stupid. The pirates, the merchants, the Coast Guards, they, they uh, carried flags of other nations. And so they would kind of try and trick you to halt, to come to with the, with their flag. Um, so they didn't fly the Jolly Roger 24-7. They didn't fly the, no, no. In fact, the smart thing to do if you were a pirate and you were, you know, coming up on a, on a, on a potential prize was to try and get an idea of what, nationality you think that crew might be from and you know your best guess might be the flag it was flying although the merchant ship could be flying a false flag as well yeah but if you saw you know a french flag you would haul up a french flag uh because what happened a lot of times in the early 18th century the ships would friendly ships would would stop near each other and kind of you know communicate information you know exchange help if need be and so on and so this was a, a common ploy that pirates used uh and so they would haul up the, the false flag to kind of bring you near, and then as you got near or as they approached you, you know, sort of at the last minute, up up would go the Jolly Roger. And at that point, you know, if you're the merchant ship, you don't have a whole lot of choices. You could try and run, but the pirates typically, their ship, they t- would take a ma- merchant ship, and they would basically refit it to make it faster and, and more agile. Uh, and it was also much more heavily armed. You know, a merchant ship was carrying cargo, not a lot of guns. Pirate ship had a lot more crew members. Uh, many, many more crew members. You know, average early 18th century pirate ship had about 80 crew members, whereas the average 200-ton early 18th century merchant ship only had, you know, maybe a dozen. Because all they have to do is keep the keep the boat afloat. Exactly. Whereas the other guys are going to try to storm you. Yep. And so they've got all pirates have all these guns. You only have uh, cargo, basically only a few guns. So they kind of had you, you know, caught in the water. So literally. But what's the, what's the big deal? So they show up with their French flag and they say, "Just kidding, we're pirates." Why do I need to put the Jolly Roger up? What's you, the point? You need to put up the Jolly Roger because if you don't put up, the, I should have mentioned this earlier. A very important part of the cost of piracy was something that clearly affected their profitability, was whether or not the merchant ship resisted them. If a merchant ship resisted, and so you have this brawl between the two, the pirate ship could get damaged. Since it's stolen, that's going to actually impact, negatively impact your ability to get a new ship to right. engage in your plan. Your crew members could die. In fact, you might even damage the prize, the ship you're trying to overtake, or sink it, sink the, you know, ruin the cargo. These, all these things undermine pirates' bottom line. Uh, so they really wanted to avoid violent contests with merchant ships. In fact, almost everything pirates did was directed, up till this point, was directed at trying to peaceably get their, get merchant ships to surrender to them. So that's why it's important. And, and what happens is, you know, if you don't go up the Jolly Roger, the merchant ship might think, oh, it's a Coast Guard ship. Well, why not resist the Coast Guard ship? Because the Coast Guard ship, even if I resist and I lose and I have to surrender, they can't really punish me, so to speak, for doing so. In fact, they probably did to a certain extent, but they couldn't punish you as harshly. At least in principle, they were limited. If it was a pirate ship, 
you would think twice, maybe three times about resisting. Not only because you were very likely to lose because it was a much stronger ship than yours, but also because you know that the pirates can exact, exact a horrible retribution on you for doing so. So you're less likely to resist the pirate ship than you are the Coast Guard. So why, the pirates, can't I, why can't I just tell them it's a pirate ship? Why do I have to put the flag up? And why couldn't a Coast Guard ship run up a Jolly Roger that wasn't a pirate? Well, I mean, I think the telling thing is something that you – they had speaking trumpets, right? You can do it, but I think the flag is just another way to communicate from a further distance. Mm-hmm. The, the more important, I think the, the better question is, is, is the second one that you raised, which is why is it that the Coast Guards don't do this? And what I argue in the book, the reason that the Coast Guards don't do it, which is to say the reason that the, the Jolly Roger was largely, although it wasn't perfectly, largely an effective signal, was that the cost of using flying the Jolly Roger was much higher for Coast Guard ships than it was for pr- pirates. Why? The reason is that pirates are already outlaws. The, the, the Skull and Bones imagery yeah. is an emblem of piracy. Right. You know, if you are caught with that, that it's is... thug. It says, exactly. I am a thug. And they would hang the flags. You know, they would ca- have the flag out oh, at the trial for everybody to see, and it was, we're condemning pirates. Everybody knows what that means. The Coast Guard ship is officially a legitimate ship. Right. If it flies the Jolly Roger, it has now ma- stepped outside those bounds, right, and it has become illegitimate, which means that now, for example... British colonial officials can send out warships to hunt and track you down. As, and, hang, and ultimately, if they catch you, hang you as a pirate. I just I was kidding. It's just a way to reduce <laughs> transaction costs. So, so let, let's, uh, it, it's clear that avoiding confl- uh, violence is always a good idea if you can get what you want peaceably. So, after you, so let's talk about a merchant ship that, that surrenders peaceably. Sees the Jolly Roger says, oh, well, because, of course, we've got a big principal agent problem there. Um, really eager to to give in, right? Merchant, the mer- it's an interesting question for the the principal, the merchant investors, the land based folks. They don't want their cargo stolen, but they don't want their capital damaged either, right? So they really don't want. I don't think they want to fight unless they have an unusually precious cargo. So it'd be interesting. I don't know. Did they tell their captain? Did they put incentives for their captains to fight or not to fight under uh, under attack. You know. The only thing related to this that that comes to my mind is that ultimately, and I'm trying to, I think maybe about um, around 1719 or the early 1720s, the government actually, maybe it was 1721, the government, British government created a, passed a new law that said if you're a merchant ship, this is how effective the Pirates Jolly Roger system was, they said if you're a merchant ship and you're armed and you do not attempt to defend against the pirate attack, then, in fact, you are subject to prison time and wage forfeiture. So this suggests a couple of things, right? First of all, the merchant ships are overwhelmingly surrendering. Yeah. So it seems unlikely that, the, that, the, cat, that the, um, the landed merchants who own the ships are at least effectively able to get these guys to, uh, guys to surrender. And it points to the, you know, the effectiveness of, of pirates' basic policy. You know, there's, there's two parts to the Jolly Roger flag, and this is another reason why I think Pirates aren't simply speaking this part, yelling this through the speaking trumpet. There's two, it would take too long to explain. The flag says, communicates two things. It, it communicates, I'm an outlaw, and if you resist me, I will brutalize you. But it also, there's a kind of sunny side to this promise. If you submit to me peacefully, in order for this strategy to have worked, this is what pirates had to do, then I won't do that to you. Right. right? And so, this is in it's fact... a tough promise to keep. Well, that one is actually the tough promise to keep is the – this is such a, 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 an interesting thing in my mind. The tough promise to keep, perhaps counterintuitively, is actually the one where I follow through on brutalizing you. The one where I don't brutalize you is not if, – if you, if you submit to me, is not costly. Brutalizing prisoners is costly. 
Not yeah. brutalized them. No. It's not. So it's actually unless you're a sadist. I mean, presumably some people must have enjoyed uh, being tough on people. I think some people did, but one of the you know themes and arguments that I push very strongly in the book, and that I th- and that I want to push, I'll push you know here now as well, is that. I don't. There is no evidence in my mind to suggest that a higher percentage of the pirate population was sadistic than a regular society. There, you know, we need to get out of our minds this notion of pirate exceptionalism. They were not, you know, they were not somehow inherently more sadistic, more brutal, more democratic, more rule-following. Notice again the, the kind of contradictions, but these are our images of them. They were just rationally self-interested economic actors, and the unique and largely entertaining. Um, result or behaviors that they engaged in are the result of rationally self-interested behavior in the particular context they operated in. So you're right. If you were sadistic, then it would be hard. You know, then it would be then, then it would be costly yeah, yeah. to not do it. But for the average pirate who just wants money, right? They're going right? to move on. Yeah, they're going to let them go. On. So what would they do? They 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 just transfer the stuff to their. Do they take the boat Sometimes and the cargo? They, do they take. They, they typically, they would look around, and the, this is another important thing the quartermaster did. It was kind of his job. First, they, most, they typically had a rule that said if there's any specie on board, we automatically take that. Which is gold, gold and silver. Yeah, gold yeah. and silver. You know, but the other issue was, well, what do we do? You know, typically there was... If what if it's were, cheap? What's that? <laughs> what if it's cheap? What if it's high-maintenance stuff you got to feed? It Very unlikely it? to take it. Right. Very unlikely to take it. Although they would take humans, which you had to feed. Uh-huh. Um, they they would take humans, but in general, the quartermaster's duty, since you couldn't fit all of the potential plunder on the ship, was to somehow you know make the decision. Right. And they would try. You know, they had a good idea in terms of what the market prices for things were. They would fence the stuff or, or divide it up amongst themselves to consume directly. Um, so yeah, they would they would take the cargo. That's usually what they were after. What would they do with the crew? The crew was a, was an interesting thing. What they would do there is first of all, if they needed members they would say who wants to join the pirate crew and you would have a lot of volunteers you have pirate crews you know contrary to the the image we have of them as as common conscriptors they did conscript some but overwhelmingly it seems that they didn't because they didn't need to you'd have more merchant sailors happy to join the pirate crew because of the better uh, treatment and the potential for better pay um, than the pirates in fact wanted so they were kind of you know they could be somewhat selective the other crew members, if you had submitted peacefully, they were put back on the ship uh, if the pirates weren't going to take that ship, and they were set along their way. Occasionally, they would do something that was not quite as nice, not with the intention of, of killing or harming the people, but simply uh, to, to kind of get rid of them. They would drop them off someplace, hopefully not a too uninhabited place. But the typical well, thing you seems to, drop to be you send them away in their ship. Yeah, you don't want to drop them off in too inhabited a place, right, because you don't want to get chased but you, you don't want to get chased but the other interesting thing here you know the kind of common idea is that uh you know dead men tell no tales and so we want to you know we people think well they must have been slaughtered kill them. all the crew yeah but it's exactly because dead men tell no tell no tales that pirates didn't want to do that they wanted people to tell tales they wanted to tell tales about how scary the pirates were and how if you cooperated with the pirates the pirates were nice to you and so on things that made it again in merchant sailors interests to surrender to them more easily those things helped pirates so they yeah. actively kind of spun that although um, it's uh there's a a free rider problem you know you don't you don't get much of the benefit of the uh of that reputational effect right the idea that that uh, victims who were spared would then go off and tell people, "Oh yeah, it turned out great. I gave in immediately, and they didn't. They were nice to me." That just helps the next pirate crew. It's not going to help you so much, right? You're saying it doesn't help the merchant sailor. No, if I'm the pirate crew, and I've 
kept my word. I said, if you if you surrender quickly, I won't I won't torture you and I won't kill you and I'll let you live. So they capture the boat, they give in quickly, they set the guy free because they want him to go around and tell people, hey, pirates are keep their word. They're creepy and scary, but you know, they don't they keep their word. You don't get much of the benefit of that. It's the next pirate crew that comes along. So there's sort of a, a common problem of common information that you don't you don't capture much of the benefit of that. Well, in the book, I argue that the way that pirates overcame this was through captain and crew-specific reputations. Um, oh, that, that'd I think be this ideal. is exactly yeah. how they did it, right? Blackbeard, everybody knew, you know, Blackbeard. Blackbeard, in fact, his reputation was so successful, as I point out, the, the sort of preeminent historian of Blackbeard, um, and I was happy to find out there is one, there is such, <laughs> there is such a thing, has indicated that what he can find in the historical record, as far as he can tell, Blackbeard never actually killed a single merchant sailor. And the reason is that he didn't need to because his reputation was so effective. So you have reputations that are specific to crews and captains, and actually the different Jolly Rogers that the crews would fly was another way that crews would help to internalize that benefit of being a stronger mm-hmm. crew. Uh, largely, not perfectly, but again, I think largely overcame the collective action problem there. Yeah, my, my, if I get, I'm not sure I have this right, but I think I have it right. The, uh, I think it was the Gurkhas. The Gurkhas um, would, they came across two people sleeping. They'd slit the throat of one of them sometimes and let the other guy live, wake up the next morning, give his bedmate a shove with his elbow and see his head roll off. And then uh, that, that was a, a, a reputational, had a big reputational effect. So this is the reverse of that, you know, you, that, that they were fairly civilized, could spread in theory. Yeah. But you wanted both things to spread, right? You right. wanted, he's brutal when, when you wrong him. When you him. cross him, yeah. Exactly. So uh, we're a little short on time. I, a couple of things I want to make sure we get to. One is uh, just an open-ended question. Um, now I happen to find that, found the book extremely entertaining and interesting, and there's a lot of good microeconomic lessons that are woven into the book. But one attitude could be, you know, who cares about pirates between 1715 and 1725? This is, you know, you know, it's just not it's not important. Why, why should I care about this? Well, the first there's a couple of reasons, but the first one, which is a very kind of Tongue-in-cheek response, but I, w- I was at um, a party the other night, and you know, typically when, when people say, you know, what are you working on? I say, pirates, people are like, oh, that's fantastic. And I, it, it was great because there was this young lady there, and, sh- and she said, what are you working on? And I said, pirates. And then she said, I don't care at all about pirates. I find them completely uninteresting. <laughs> uh, and I said, you know, do you have a pulse? And that's my first answer. So if pirates don't get you going, yeah, no, it's true. Well, that Johnny Depp has really helped, I think, create the market for this book. Uh, <laughs> and um, you know, Kira Knightley hasn't heard either. So it's uh, that's a there is a certain inevitable romance that we have about pirates. And I think you know what I argue in the book, and this is my real answer to why I think they, matter. which is bizarre, by the way. It's a little bit like having a romance for communism, right? Well, they, they were kind of unattractive folks who who they were thieves. Well, I mean, it's weird that we have this romance for them. It's weird, but it's not because, in a sense, I think it's actually justified. You know, in in the book, I point out that I think, in a sense, we ought to be unabashedly pro-pirate, and that's in the following way: all thieves should be condemned as thieves, but not all thieves are equal. Some, in addition to taking something out of the world, also gave the world something back, and I think pirates are an example of this. And what I think they gave the world back was testament to the effectiveness of self-governance. And in particular, testament to the effectiveness and, in fact, early experimentation with, in this sense, they were sort of harbingers, I even argue, of constitutional democracy. You've got to remember that what pirates are doing 
is quite remarkable for the time in which they're doing it. They are experimenting with a system of checks and balances, separated powers, and so on, more than half a century before Madison puts pen to paper. In fact, they're, beginning, they're, they're experimenting with the beginnings of the system before the English Bill of Rights. Uh, in particular, the fact that it's not just that they're ex- early experimenters with this system, but who they are. They are outlaws. They are, you know, motley, nasty, you know, outlaws, violent outlaws. And you see them developing this system, and you see the system being effective amongst them. It points to, in my mind, the robustness of certain forms of social organization. And they are kind of unique in providing that at that sort of evidence. And, and so in that way, I think that they are, they are truly fascinating uh, and really showed us something. Another thing, you know, the book is called The Invisible Hook, which is a play, of course, on Adam Smith's invisible hand idea. And I do think that pirates, at, at a minimum, generate what I call some conditional social benefits. You know, of course, Adam Smith's invisible hand, self-interseeking, generating social benefits... With pirates, it's a it's a tough you know it's a tougher situation because they're thieves, so you know they're just transferring wealth to themselves. But they did do some things. Their self interested behavior did lead to some things that I think can be counted as genuine social benefits. And one of those is actually racial tolerance, which I discuss at a sort of later chapter in the book. It turns out that um, at a time when black slaves were treated as well, you know, slaves <laughs> in, in the early 18th century legitimate world. Pirates were basically granting them, in many cases, their freedom, which not only meant equal pay rights, but also equal suffrage, which is uh, quite striking, I think. They did this not because they were racially tolerant. Again, it wasn't something exceptional about pirates. They were as racist as their legitimate contemporaries. But they did it because it bolstered the bottom line, Uh, in particular because enslaving fellows, in many cases, not in all, but in many cases actually would have been more costly than it was worth. So you've got piratical self-interest seeking leading to a system of constitutional democracy, this early experimentation, leading to things like racial tolerance. And I argue in the book, I think in many ways, providing a testament to and embracing in some ways some of the modern world's most cherished values, values like democracy, um, equality in this instance, and even social safety with their private system of, uh, of social insurance. So I think that's why we ought to be interested in pirates in addition to the fact that it's just a good time. Yeah. Well, I know you're very interested in how, as am I, in how uh, governance, which you distinguish from government, uh, which is very important that you can have governance without government. People often forget that, and I think the book does a really nice job emphasizing that. But you and I are both interested in how governance can emerge uh, without uh, legal uh, coercive mechanisms. And I think – a really important uh, research agenda that this is that I know only a part of. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, I think you know that's probably the theme that I that I emphasize the most in the book is the theme of self governance. And I just want to, because I've in talking to people about this, you know, I've been giving a few book talks and dis, and discussions with others, and, and there's something that I want to clarify. Governance refers to a system of of you know privately created um, rules and means of enforcement sort of spontaneous order certainly can be, you know, can be a way of generating governance as opposed to that, that top-down creation of government, which I distinguish. But let me, the, the following thing is an example of governance. If I agree not to, you know, steal your shoes, I agree to that. And then I, and we have a third party who's, you know, like our quartermaster in this room. 
and then I steal your shoes. And I also agreed that if I stole your shoes, I would be subject to the punishment of 15 lashings from the quartermaster. That is not coercive. That is considered governance in my mind. And mm-hmm. what some people seem to have mistaken is they've said, you're wrong, governance. That's like law. Exact, yeah. That's exactly right. Nobody is arguing we don't need rules and we don't need methods of enforcement. The issue is, do, how do these things emerge? And it, critically, from my perspective, are they voluntarily agreed to ex ante or not? And if I agree to punishments and then I am punished under that, even if the punishment involves violence, which of course at the time I don't want to have happened to me, but I agreed ex ante to ex ante to it. That is a voluntary a, I, a, a system of governance. And so totally agree. Yeah. I've run into people. You know, I actually read. I understand a, it would be could be difficult for people to understand, but yes. But this is a, a crucial a crucial thing. You know, because well, the reason it's important is that in the when we have the co- coercive power of government, uh, people say, "Well, you, it's a social contract." That to me means. It's not a contract. (laughs) But if I sign a piece of paper and I say I'm liable for these damages and you you can collect them, whether it's physical corporal punishment or fine, I I agree to it. And I chose to be part of the enterprise. I wasn't born into it. I was – although I guess uh, Pirates of Penzance would be an exception to that. Um, But anyway, before before I forget, I want to ask you two more closing things. One is these are all really interesting stories. But as you pointed out earlier, most pirates didn't keep a lot of diaries, journals. They didn't write a lot of memoirs. How do we know what we know about pirates, and how do we know it's even vaguely reliable? Where where do we get our information that you've been talking about? There's a couple of main sources. I think the two kind of kings, of which which I point to in the book, of the primary source historical record are actually two books. The first was a genuine chronicle by a buccaneer, no doubt in in part because of the the quasi-legitimacy of the enterprise. Uh, Alexander Exgemelin, a a, uh, a Dutch buccaneer, wrote chronicled some of his exploits and social organization. Historians rely on this highly reliable. There was some debate at one point about who the author was, whether or not it was actually this guy or, or Shakespeare. Guy. Yeah, or Shakespeare. yeah, it could have been written by Shakespeare. Even though most of Shakespeare isn't written by Shakespeare. So I love got, author debates. Yes, yeah. that that has happened very much so between this and and the book that I'm going to talk about now. So that's the first the first one. Uh, the second one is written by a mysterious author whose pen name is Captain Charles Johnson. And this book was published in 1724, and, and later there was a second edition that came out, uh, a, a second volume that was sort of part of it. The full thing, the full thing came out in 1728. And this is where most of the stories of early 18th century pirates come from. And the way that – and there's been big debate about who this is. Some thought it was Defoe. Um, some people at one point thought it was an actual pirate. Regardless of the Defoe theory has been, you know, debunked. Regardless of who it is, we know that whoever Johnson was, he had very, very close relationships with pirates. It seems not only pirates, but especially with the people who were dealing with pirates, such as uh, men of law. Because, and this is the other place that we have to kind of triangulate the evidence from, there's the um, colonial office papers have so these are archival records have in it, tons and tons of letters uh, and so on correspondence from colonial governors related to what's happening with pirates they're describing the problems we also have lots of trial evidence and at the time since Johnson is writing this initially in 1724 he seems to have either had access to all of those records at the time or to the people who were writing know, those records yeah. because it is there are problems right there are some apocryphal portions of the general history of the pirates which is Johnson's book 
but in general, and the parts that I rely on in in my book are uh, well corroborated by these other records in the Colonial Office papers. So that's where we've got it. So there's tons of archival stuff, but then you've got these two other books. Um, the archival stuff also has some of these evidence of these this constant these articles and the, the kind of behavior that you're focusing on. The articles come from two primary places. One is Johnson, who re, who relays I think three examples of pirate constitutions in the book, and the other main one is actually, which is another important source, which I should have pointed to, is early 18th century newspapers. Uh-huh. Um, and there we have corroboration of uh, an important pirate constitution that appears in both places. And again, it appears that basically what Johnson had access to was either that newspaper article when it was coming out, or the guy who wrote the article, or the pirate whose ship it was on. He had, because it's basically repeated almost verbatim. Um, so that's where a lot of that stuff comes from. So the, so the pirate constitution is from jo- from Johnson and from early 18th century newspaper account. So if, you be, if you're an expert on pirates, and I would say you are the world's authority on the economics of pirates, right. uh, it's a niche that you've, you totally dominate. Um, you know, in your fantasies, you'd think that the best you could hope for would be a consulting gig on the next Pirates of the Caribbean movie, which would be pleasant. Uh, might be you know more than any economist could ever hope for. But the uh, economics of pirates is actually, unfortunately, newsworthy. Uh, we have modern pirates, which is bizarre and weird that, that there are such things. Do you have anything to say about them? I do. I talk about them a little bit in the book, but at the time when I was writing, much more information about the Somali pirates has emerged, actually, in the short period of time between when I wrote the book and now. In the book, I, I, my basic line is as follows, which I still think is, is largely right. Most of the modern pirates, especially, including the Somali variety, until very recently anyway, are simply not that interesting. They don't spend very much time together on their ships, uh, which means there are no floating societies for governance institutions to emerge on. They're kind of in-and-out operations, six guys in a skiff, and they ransom. Because of this, they don't really require a system of social organization. They don't yeah. form societies. So they're, in that sense, they're one-time not as interesting. Gang. One time One time, and even when it's repeated, it's still, there just isn't much to, to kind of, you know, govern. You don't need a rule against smoking, for example, if you're going to yeah. be on a metal ship for, yeah. you know, an hour. It just isn't, isn't necessary. <laughs> Uh, but more recently, because the Somali pirate population has grown, and they are and they are spending lots of time together, not on their ships now, but actually at various land bases in Somalia, what we see is a new a new pirate society is being born, and unsurprisingly, again, given the need for social order and given the spontaneous emergence of private governance institutions where government can't provide such uh, social order, we see then among these landed uh, Somali pirate communities a system of rules, private law and order emerging. They now have rules that are in some ways reminiscent, especially those regarding uh, prohibiting inter-pirate theft and violence and so on, and treatment of prisoners, in fact, among the Somali pirates. You also have a kind of what in the Somali pirate case is a mobile court, a kind of traveling judiciary uh, that enforces these rules. And the reason that it's mobile is because the the, the current Somali pirate organization, which I could, now seems to actually exist, consists of a bunch of pirate cells kind of dotting the coastline. And they, unlike early 18th century pirates, early 18th century pirate crew kind of operated largely autonomously. These guys seem to be connected, but they're geographically separated. So in order to kind of have provide some kind of industry-wide level, so to speak, what you have is this mobile um, judiciary going around to the different communities and resolving various pirate conflicts. So I think that part is very interesting. 
The one other thing I'll say about uh, modern pirates, which is, I think, similar to their early 18th century predecessors, is, again, they are economic actors. They can be and should be analyzed using the rational choice framework, in my mind. And we see this most strongly in the fact that, contrary to all of the hubbub about the the growth of, of modern piracy and the number of hostages, 815, it turns out, last year, taken by the Somali pirates, Pretty much none of them are ever injured or killed. Four have died, it appears, accidentally under pirate, in pirate's care. Only two have been injured, which constitutes less than one-half of one percent of all of those taken last year. And the reason is not because Somali pirates are nice guys. It's because, you know, dead and injured prisoners, prisoners don't fetch a ransom. Uh, it's not in their financial interest to harm these guys. So we again see the invisible hook generating at least some kind of conditional benefits, even in modern pirate in the modern pirate case. It's not that you want to be overtaken by pirates, but it's better to be overtaken by a greedy pirate than one who doesn't <laughs> care about money. My guest today has been Pete Leeson of George Mason University, author of The Invisible Hook. Pete, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you very much. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.